Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 5. We will finish the book of James today, Lord willing. James chapter 5 beginning in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way, will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would take your word today, that you would mold us and shape us. That, Lord, as we hear your word, as we read your word, as your word finds entrance into our hearts, God, let it renew our minds. And so let us be a people conformed to the very image of the Son of God, the Son of glory, that we would shine gloriously bright in this world to give witness to your glorious name. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we conclude the book of James... James, at the end of his letter, as he concludes it, gives some practical instruction here, not unrelated to the context that we've been looking at and reading as we've gone through this letter that James wrote. And here in verse 13, James says, if anyone among you is suffering, or he actually asks the question, is anyone among you suffering? And the answer is, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. We are to continue praying. We are to continue singing. So when he says, let him pray and let him sing psalms, this is not a one and done thing. This is something that we are to continuously be doing. Paul writes 
in his first letter, or in his letter to the first to First Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. First Thessalonians five seventeen. Pray without ceasing. And I've had people ask me, well, how am I supposed to do that, Pastor? I don't have time all day to just sit around and pray. And obviously, that's not what Paul is saying here. When James James writes in his letter asking this question, is anyone among you suffering? And he says, let him pray. James is telling us to do the same thing Paul is telling the Thessalonians to do when he says pray without ceasing. Let him keep praying. Is anyone cheerful among you? Let him keep singing psalms. Sometimes people will tell me, well, I tried that and it didn't work. Well, keep trying. How long do I need to keep doing this? As long as you may be suffering, keep praying. And I would say, don't just sing when you're cheerful. I would say, sing while you're suffering as well. And you might find that cheer begins to rise up within you. Because to pray when you're suffering and to sing psalms when you are cheerful really are one and the same thing. It's just directing your prayer in different directions for different needs. When I'm suffering, I need to pray. I need to present my supplications, my petitions, my needs to the Lord. When I'm cheerful, I need to sing. I need to offer up psalms to the Lord in thanksgiving, and that is a form of prayer. It's just a prayer from a joyful heart. It's a prayer of thanksgiving, not bringing a need to God, but thanking Him that He is the meter of all of our needs. So when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, or when James writes here, and we are exhorted to pray without ceasing, or to keep praying, or to keep singing, prayer is not only about our problems, it is about our praises. James rightfully draws our attention to this truth. James asks, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. The exhortation here is to keep on praying, to keep on singing. Don't stop. I'm saying that. Don't stop. Keep faithfully praying. Keep cheerfully singing. Psalms, James qualifies there. It's not that you can't sing anything else. You can But when you sing the psalms, when you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, you are singing something that is conformed to God, to His Word. And when we offer up prayers, our prayers, whether we are singing them in the form of psalms or hymns or spiritual songs, we're offering those prayers that are consistent with who God is with what His Word declares. It's why we are careful about the songs we sing because 
We want to sing songs that glorify God. We want to sing psalms that communicate who God is. It's not that there aren't other songs that can do that. But the psalms have been given to us by God as a book of songs and a book of prayers that we can offer up to God. And this is what James is saying. Are you cheerful? Sing psalms to God. Sing to God and keep on singing. Even in the face of affliction and suffering, keep praying. When you are cheerful, don't stop singing. Don't stop praising God. Even when you're not cheerful, don't stop praising Him. Because He's not just worthy when He feels worthy to you, when your life is all that it should be and the sun is shining down on you. He's worthy. Always, always worthy. Pray without ceasing is not only taking our problems to God, but taking our praise to Him, our thanksgiving to Him. That is the sacrifice of praise that we are told to offer up to God. The fruit of our lips, offering thanks to Him. In verse 14, is anyone among you sick? James asks. Well, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> when we read the Bible, we should not just read what it says, but we should also pay attention to what it doesn't say sometimes. Now, I'm not saying read into the Bible what's not there. I'm saying pay attention to what the Bible is teaching us because it's also teaching us things that aren't expressly written there by the things that are expressly written there. Here is an example here in the, in the letter that James wrote to these believers. He asked the question, is anyone among you sick? Well, we should pause and consider this question and the exhortation that follows. The presence of those who are suffering and sick should remind us of something. James does not make the assumption there are no sick among God's people, but just the opposite. James exhorts and admonishes the one who is sick to call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. As I went through this studying the book of James and preparing even for this lesson, I was very glad that Christ Fellowship has a long history of doing what this scripture tells us to do. It's here for a reason, and it is important. James in no way indicates that it's unusual to have sickness among God's people. Of course, we are never happy about sickness or suffering, but we should also not be surprised when it comes. We live in a sin-sick and fallen world. 
Our new life in Christ does not make us immune to sickness or to suffering, but it does give us the promise of eternal life and victory over sin and death in this life and the next. And the promise that the Lord gives us is that in the midst of our sickness, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of walking through the valley of the shadow of death, He has not abandoned us, but He is with us. He is right there with us. In fact, He's not just walking with us. If you've been through any measure of sickness or suffering, you know that He is not just walking with you, but He carries you carries you. The instruction to call upon the elders of the church means we are not to go it alone. Are you sick among us? James says, call upon the elders of the church, that they may pray over you and anoint you with oil. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. We're going to look at what the rest of that verse says in just a moment. We are the body of Christ made up of many members. And just like all the members of your body, they don't function well alone. In fact, they're not designed to function alone, but they're designed to function together, all connected. So... It's not just, I keep all my parts with me. You know, if you cut your finger off and you put it in your pocket, it's not going to work very well. It needs to be connected to life. It needs to be connected so that it can function with all the other members of your body. That picture that the Scripture gives us is not by accident. You weren't created the way you were by accident, even the form you take as God's creation communicates his gospel. It communicates the very relation we have with him as his people, as we are his church and he is our God, as we are his bride and he is our bridegroom. Made one with him. We're not to go it alone. We're not to function alone because we are members of one body under one head who is Christ. We are to pray for one another and we are not called to suffer alone or to celebrate alone. But we're called to suffer together, to pray together, corporately in community as members of his body, to celebrate together, corporately, in in community, as members of his body. It's why we come to this table every week. This is a table of celebration. I want to emphasize again, because sometimes I think this is missed, depending on what tradition you may have come from. If you look in your bulletin, there's a very specific and purposeful order to this to the service to our worship each week 
And there's a heading that says, the call, call to worship. And after the call to worship, you'll notice we start singing, and then there is a confession of sin. And after you've been given the opportunity to confess your sin to God, and I, I, I want to add, this is not the only time you should be confessing your sin, but this is a time for the corporate body to come together and confess corporately and individually our sin. And after that confession of sin, there is what? An assurance of pardon. And then God consecrates us through his word. He sets us apart for him. He prepares us. And the picture here is from the tabernacle. And we are that ascension offering. We are that burnt offering that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12 when he says, Brothers, I beg you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your reasonable act of worship. When he says present your bodies a living sacrifice, the picture is the ascension offering. It's the burnt offering. And what does that mean? How do we ascend to God? We're burnt up and we ascend in the smoke, in the aroma of that offering, but we come into God's presence. We're received into his presence having been consecrated by God after we confess our sin and receive the assurance of pardon. So when we come to the part of our worship where we come to the table, when we commune with God, this is not a somber time. You've already had your somber time when you confessed your sin to God. When you come to this table, it, that's not the time to examine your, your heart to make sure everything's okay. We did that when you knelt down or assumed a humble position and confessed your sin to God. And after you did that and you stood up, you received what? An assurance of pardon. So each week when you come to this table, you are to come with assurance that the blood of Jesus has taken away your sin. If you're trusting in him, that's what's happened. It's, it's been taken away. It's not just been covered up so that you can't see it and others can't see it. It's been taken away. As far as the east is from the west, God has removed your sin from him. And if he doesn't remember it, then you shouldn't either. And so when you come to this table to commune with God, it is literally a celebration. I mean, when you go to your Thanksgiving feast, Thanksgiving is coming. I can't hardly wrap my head around that. I mean, in about a month, actually in a month, in a day, it will be Thanksgiving. How many of you, when you go to your Thanksgiving celebration, however, wherever you go, how many of you wear black and go in mourning? You say, what, what are you doing? I'm mourning as I'm eating my Thanksgiving meal. You're not supposed to be mourning. You're supposed to be giving thanks. This is not a table of mourning. This is a table of thanksgiving. This is not a table for you to come and mourn your sin at. This is a table for you to celebrate the fact that Jesus has taken away your sin, that the only thing that could remove the stain of sin from your life has been applied. It is the blood of Jesus, and we proclaim the body, and we proclaim the blood, and we thank God that we are his children, and he has brought us into his presence to commune with him 
to receive his bread, to receive his wine, to be renewed, to be strengthened so that we are then sent back out into this world on mission, commissioned by God to make known the glories of his name. This is why the order of worship we have each week is in that order. This is not the order we came up with. This is the order that God shows us in his word. And he shows us that pattern because that's that's how we worship him. We can't come into his presence with sin in our lives. So we run to Jesus, and we run to the blood, we run to the cross, and we fall upon the mercy of God and the grace of God, and that blood is applied, and we receive that assurance, and then we come to celebrate in his presence, knowing, proclaiming the very elements that have cleansed us and made us righteous before him, his body and his blood. So as we, as we are told by James here to come, to call upon the elders of the church, I want you to notice not only is it that we're not to go it alone, Not only is it that we should have the assurance that Christ receives us when we actually pray, he hears us as his people. But I want you to notice that James does not instruct the sick to call for the local faith healer of the church or of the television or of the parachurch ministry. He does not instruct you to go to the one supposedly gifted to work miracles, following crusades around the country trying to obtain your healing. Where does James instruct those who are sick among us to go? He says, go to the elders of the church. There's nothing weird about his instructions. His message and instruction are for the sick. For the sick is clear. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And someone might say, well, pastor, what if that elder doesn't have the gift of healing? How am I going to be healed? Well, you're never going to be healed because someone has the gift of healing. The only way you're ever going to be healed is because the Lord wills you to be healed. And I think it's telling. We should not just see what this scripture is telling us, what we can see here, but, but also notice what we can't see here that is true. James doesn't have to tell us all the places we don't need to go because he tells us the one place we do need to go. And so in telling us this, we don't need to worry about all the other places we could go. 
And we're not trusting that that elder has the ability to heal us because no elder has the ability to heal you. No pastor has the ability to heal you. No faith healer, no miracle worker. I don't care how many followers they have on TikTok or Twitter or X or Facebook or how many times their show shows on Christian television and what they tell you. No man has the ability to heal you. Only the Lord is your healer. So don't put your faith in a man. Put your faith in the Lord. Well, pastor, what if the Lord doesn't heal me when I want and how I want? Keep praying. Keep singing psalms. Keep trusting him. Well, I did that. I did that for like three months, and it still hasn't worked. I'm still sick and suffering. Keep praying. Keep singing. Keep trusting the Lord. Pastor, what if I die in the meantime? Well, you'll know that your prayers were answered. Because you won't be sick anymore. And you won't be suffering anymore. Now, do we want it to work that way? No. I want my wife to be healed right now. If it was up to me right now, she wouldn't be sitting in that chair. She'd be sitting up here in this chair, and she'd walk down here in her own power. But it's not up to me. And I'm not saying I like that. I don't like that. I would rather it be up to me because then I, I'd make it happen the way I want it to happen. But the reality is it's a good thing it's not that way because I'm not God and you certainly wouldn't want me to be God. If you think your life is bad now, you can't even imagine how bad it would be if I was God. I mean, that's beyond imagination. That's like a nightmare you don't want to have, right? But that's true for all of us. That's why we're to pray for one another. We're to encourage one another. But our trust is in the Lord. When you, and so many of you do, tell me, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for Andrea. I appreciate that. But don't think for one minute that I'm depending upon you for her healing. That's not how it works. But there is something powerful about our praying. There is something powerful about how God moves and works through the prayers of his people. We act in faith as a body. So we're to call for the elders then the elders are to pray over them who are sick, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. We act in faith as a body. These little ones who came up for prayer, you don't think that was faith? That was faith. Call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is what we do each week in our service for those sick and suffering among us. And each week there is the opportunity to call upon the elders for prayer, to be anointed with oil in the name of the Lord. 
not in the name of the pastor or the elder, but in the name of the Lord. There's nothing magical about the elders at all. I'm sure you guys know that. The oil is not magical and the oil is not medicinal. It is symbolic. What's it symbolic for? I don't have to have oil to pray over you, but I use oil because I want you to understand what that oil symbolizes. And the Bible tells us to anoint with oil. There's no healing properties in the oil that's being imparted to the one anointed. There is, though, great symbolic meaning in that oil. Oil was used to anoint priests and prophets and kings. It represented the anointing of the Holy Spirit that set them apart for their new vocation. Every time a new king was crowned, he was anointed with oil, and he was he was anointed into his new vocation. Same with prophets, same with priests. Even the dead were anointed in burial in preparation for resurrection life. When the sick are anointed with oil by the elders in the name of the Lord, it is a ritual sign that the one sick needs the ministry of the Holy Spirit for healing and comfort. And they are to walk in that vocation, if you will, of sickness and suffering until the Lord chooses to deliver them from that. They have been anointed for that. I know that's an anointing that none of us want. But we receive anointings from God, not because we ask for them, but because God has a plan and a purpose in all things, as much as we may not like that. But do you trust him more than you dislike your circumstance? That's an important question. Do you trust him more than you dislike your circumstance? That anointing with oil represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit and when the sick are anointed with oil by the elders in the name of the Lord, it is that sign of their need for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, for healing and for comfort. It is the Lord, not the elder, not the one sick, not any other that determines when or how healing will take place in this life or the next. David prayed, oh, that I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And we very often think that that only means while we're alive on this earth. But I promise you, whenever you or I die in Christ, we are going to the land of the living and we will see the goodness of God. If you die and go to the land of the non-living, you're in trouble. Because when we die in Christ, we go to the land of the living and we will see and we will know his goodness and his joy unspeakable and full of glory. That doesn't make us want to die. I taught a 
I, I teach a, a two-day class about suicide. I'm an instructor on a, for a class called um, Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training. And one of the things we talk about in this class, and it's, it's interesting to me as a believer, and statistically, scientifically, we know this to be true. Every person has a desire to live. Whether they know it or not, some people can't find it, some people can't see it, but even when they can't see it, even when they can't feel it, even when they can't find it, there is a desire to live. It's inherent in us. Where do you think that desire comes from? It comes from God. It comes from God. Now, we might not know how we're going to live in our circumstance. How can I live with this pain? How can I live with this suffering? But there is a desire for life that comes from God. And so trusting God in the midst of your sickness, in the midst of your suffering, doesn't mean you're ready to die and go be with the Lord. You have an intense will to live and you resist that sickness and you resist that suffering because God has put that desire for life in you. Even though you know that death has no hold over you, you still struggle for life. And that is a good and a right struggle that each and every one of us should embrace. Anointing with oil was also a sign of cheerfulness and joy. Paul writes in Romans 14, 17, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. The anointing with oil is simply a sign we are set apart for that righteousness, that peace, and that joy of the Holy Spirit. Whether we're sick or whether we're well, whether we're suffering, or whether we are experiencing full joy and happiness and pleasure. Then James writes in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The prayer of faith will save the sick. That's a clear statement that we can't ignore or just gloss over. We are saved by grace through faith. James is instructing the sick to call upon the elders of the church for prayer, and James indicates that the prayer of faith will save the sick. We no longer, we no longer live in the apostolic age where God granted miracles and signs that accompanied his disciples and his apostles of that early church. We no longer have men walking around and healing people at will. We don't have people walking and their people are healed by their shadow. That's not a common occurrence in the world we live in today. Having said that, don't hear what I'm not saying. Having said that, we must also not discount that God can perform any kind of miracle he chooses to perform with or without us. 
I believe that with my whole heart because I have witnessed and been a part of miracles that cannot be explained in any other way except God did it. But if anyone ever says to you, I have the gift of healing and I can heal you, I would advise you to go the other way from that person. But someone says, I hear you're sick and you're suffering. I believe in my God. I believe my God is able to do anything. Can I pray with you? Can I agree with you right now that God would touch you and heal you, that God would do the miraculous, that God would do what man can't do? I would say, yes, brother, let us pray. Absolutely. We need to be wise as the body of Christ. We need to be careful. We need to adhere to the Scripture. We need to trust in God, whether He gives you or me the miracle I want and the time I want and how I want. We still trust God. We don't discount the power of God. We don't limit the power of God to heal His people miraculously and mysteriously in response to the prayers of the church. And each week we offer up the prayers of the church to the Lord, trusting that He will miraculously and mysteriously heal. And He does. And the Lord will raise him up. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The Lord will raise him up. There is no other who can raise you up or anyone else. God works through our faith, but it is the Lord who is working by the power of his might. I say the Lord works through our faith because if you don't ask God, you won't receive from God. You have not because you ask not. Now, I know God often, <laughs> very often, gives us things we don't ask for. I mean blessings. It happens all the time. We live in that reality. But we are not taught to live with a need and to suffer alone and to not ask God or not ask one another because our pride is in the way. And very often, we hold up false humility. That is exactly that. It's false. It's not humility. That's, that's pride disguised as humility. Don't do that. Don't do that. If there are sick among us, then ask for prayer. Go to God in prayer. And let God work through his church, because that's how God works. The Lord will raise him up, working by the power of his might. In Christ, you've already been raised with him, having been crucified with him. Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We must believe that God has already and that God will 
one day raise us up in this life and in the next. You're not always going to have the body you have right now. There's coming a day when this age will be swallowed up by that age which is to come where there is no more sin, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more pain. But it's not here yet. So what do we do? We pray and we keep praying. We sing and we keep singing. We trust and we keep trusting. And we wait for that day. Whether God raises us up right here and right now in this time and in this day, or whether God does it in the day that he calls us home or in the day that he brings about the consummation of all things and the final enemy is put underfoot, which is death. James writes that we are to confess and pray to one another. This is all related. Verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. In humility, we are to confess our trespasses, our faults to one another. We don't do that a lot. We're to pray for one another. James writes that we are to do this so that we may be healed. It is our pride that often keeps us from confessing to one another or praying for one another. That pride can stand in the way of our healing in many ways. Then James makes a powerful statement in verse 16. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. A more literal translation is this. The supplication of a righteous man avails much in its working. Do you believe your prayers are working? You should. Don't believe your prayers are powerless. Believe your prayers are powerful. Because the Bible says they are. Now, I'm not saying pray some weak, limp prayer. I'm saying pray with energy. That's what this word fervent, effectual, fervent prayer. Pray with energy as much as you can muster. And when you pray, believe and trust the Lord. We live in a day and a time where not only is church attendance and commitment waning, but Christians have so long ago abandoned these things that we once saw as basic and foundational to our faith that we have forgotten. The prayer of a righteous man that avails much in what it's working no doubt includes those prayers that members of the body are to pray for one another as we confess our faults to one another, as well as our needs. Brother, sister, pray for me. I'm struggling. Let's pray. Brother, sister, pray for me. I'm sick. I'm suffering. Let us pray. And it's not your working up some type of energy in your prayer that's going to heal someone, it will not. You don't need to do that. It's who you're calling upon. It's who you're praying to. 
It's the throne you've been invited to come before. And when you pray in the name of the Lord, when you go to the Father in the name of Jesus, when you go to the Father in prayer, you are coming to the throne of grace. The power is there. It's not in you. It's in Him. But He works through you because you are the vessel that's praying. You are the vessel that is in connection with your brother or your sister. You are the vessel that's in agreement with your brother or your sister. And you pray together and you trust the Lord together because He is the one that will answer. Then in verse 17, James gives us Elijah as our example. He brings to mind Elijah the prophet as an example for his readers. Remember his Jews who had been dispersed throughout the known world. His story, Elijah's story, is found in 1 Kings 17. The readers of this letter would have been very familiar with Elijah. He mentions Elijah because his story has relevance to them. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. James is pointing out that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That as a man, Elijah was no different than any one of us. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. His prayer life may have been different than ours, as well as his gifts and his callings, but his standing as a righteous man before the Lord was not unique to him. Our standing, our righteous standing, our righteousness before the Lord comes by grace through faith, just like it did with Elijah. It was true for Elijah... It was true for those reading James' letter in the day, and it is true for us today. Why do I say that? Because James writes that the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. You might say, well, pastor, I'm not very righteous. Oh, really? Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in his blood that takes away your sin? Are you trusting in his body that was broken for you on the cross? Do you know that you've been crucified with him and it's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you? And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God? Are you trusting in Jesus? Well, yes, pastor, I am. Then God counts you righteous, not because you remember your sin, but because he has taken away your sin. So see yourself, count yourself the same way God does. Repent of your sin and sin no more, but see yourself as God sees you. And know that when you pray to God, you have right standing with him in Jesus Christ. And your, your prayers are powerful and effective in working for God's glory. 
Well, I can't see it, Pastor. Stop walking by sight and start walking by faith. And believe what the Word of God says, not what your eyes see. That doesn't mean that all of our prayers will be answered how and when and where we desire. It does mean just what it says, that our effectual, fervent prayers avail much in our righteousness before the Lord. So what does James tell us to do? Keep praying. Keep singing. Keep trusting. Elijah had his moments of doubt and questioning. You can read his story beginning in 1 Kings chapter 17. He had his own doubts, his own moments like we all do because he was a man with a nature like ours. But God is faithful to make himself known to us in this world that he has created and placed us in. And through James, the Lord reminds us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours And as his energetic work and prayer availed much, so can ours today. Elijah stood on a national stage and turned the people back to God. He prayed with power over the rain. Then he fled from his enemies to a place and a person God had prepared as he went to minister to a poor widow. From a national stage, seeing great signs and wonders and miracle to running for his life literally and God sends him to a Samaritan woman of all people who is getting ready to die and it seems like in those moments God had to remind Elijah who Elijah was, but also who God is. Elijah cried out, I'm the only one, poor me. No one else can identify with where I'm at and what I'm experiencing. God says, Elijah, be quiet. I've got 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You are not the only one. Now pick yourself up and go. I prepared a widow for you. You and I don't know what God has prepared for us that we can't see and that we don't know right now. But we can read the scripture and we can see Jesus and we can know that if Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, he was just an ordinary man. And God knew where he was sending him and God prepared before Elijah ever got there and the widow didn't even know. But God knew. So it doesn't matter whether you know. It doesn't matter that the person on the other end knows. What matters is God knows. And we're not trusting in ourselves, and we're not trusting in that person on the other end of our destiny, our divine purpose. We're trusting in the Lord, and the Lord will get us to that divine purpose, to that divine place. James is using Elijah as an example that those believers he's writing could relate to. And they too were trying to turn a nation back to God, but it seemed they were forgetting the more weightier matters of the law, such as 
justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And in his prayerful obedience, Elijah trusted the Lord and his will and followed his instructions even when he did not understand all that the Lord was instructing him to do and all that the Lord was doing. Guess what? We are called to do the very same thing. God calls us to bring them back and to bring them in. Then James writes these words, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We've already talked about this. James is writing this letter to groups of believers who are tempted to divert from the way of God and to revert back to the way of the world. And James is instructing those thoughtful believers to pay attention and to turn their brethren back to the truth. Don't let them go in the way of error. Don't let them become like their persecutors. Don't let them become like the world. Turn them back. Because someone who turns a sinner back from the error of their way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James is riding to wandering sheep in danger of falling prey to wolves and the perils that await those separated from the flock and the ways of God. We are to keep to the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Fortunately, he is the good shepherd who leads us in that way. We are our brother's keeper. We are to confess to one another and pray for one another. We are to help one another in the way. And when we see any among us that wanders from the truth, we are to be the hands and feet and mouth of our good shepherd and turn them back from the error of their way. According to James, in doing that, we are to know that we will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And that covering is the blood of our Savior who has conquered death and provided for us a salvation so great that we cannot even begin to imagine it. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand for your charge and your commission. God has chosen to work through his community of believers called the church. That's you and me. Peter calls us a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people meant to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, have obtained mercy. We, too, are to extend mercy and grace to one another, just as we have received it from our God. We are a priesthood of believers called to minister to one another and to the world, the world that God created, the world that God put you in to be a light and a refuge in the darkness the church is the ark of safety God is building in this world. You are called to find the wanderers and turn them back to the truth. 
You are called to seek the lost and bring them into the truth they have been suppressing in unrighteousness. And you are called the church. You are the people of God in this world. And you are here for them, for one another, and for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's sing our thanks. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. And 